You're listening to The Cutting Edge, voices from the AHA. This is Dougal McDonald, editor of the American Alpine Journal, the AHA. In this episode of The Cutting Edge, we're going to be speaking with two European climbers, Sylvain Schupbach from Switzerland and Matteo della Bordella from Italy. In February, the two men completed the first ascent of a remote peak in Patagonia. But what makes this expedition special is not just the climb, which was difficult, but how they got there. The two paddled sea kayaks for 100 kilometers, three days, just to reach base camp. This is the latest in a series of fair means expeditions that the two have done, either together or with other partners, in which the approach is a huge part of the challenge. Instead of using a helicopter or boat or trucks or any other powered means to get to base camp, they take a minimalist approach that adds a great deal of difficulty and uncertainty to the adventure. In this episode, we'll talk more about this style and the rules of the game. But first, I want to thank our presenting sponsor, Hilleberg the Tentmaker. For over 45 years, Hilleberg the Tentmaker has been family-owned and family-run and has specialized exclusively in building strong, lightweight tents, never compromising on quality of materials or construction. Hilleberg tents are the go-to choice for discerning outdoor adventurers the world over, especially for those who travel in challenging terrain and conditions and who depend on utter reliability from their equipment. Conceived and developed in northern Sweden, Hilleberg tents are made in Europe, built to last, and offer the ideal balance of high strength, low weight, ease of use, and remarkable comfort. Matteo de la Bordella, one of our guests today, is, a, is the president of the Ragni di Lecco, the Lecco Spiders in Italy. Over the years, various members of this group have done many of the most important first ascents in Patagonia. And in many ways, they seem to embody the old Patagonia when few climbers were in the area and El Chalten barely existed. Interestingly, this past season seemed to mark a return to the old Patagonia in many areas, with horrible weather preventing much from getting done. And so maybe it was appropriate that this was the year that De La Bordella and Schupbach took on this adventure, going far away from the pleasures and comforts of El Chalten and into a total wilderness. Chris Kalman spoke with Matteo and Silvan to get the whole story. After Chris's intro, the first person you'll hear from is Matteo. Matteo and Silvan, thanks a lot for making the time to chat with me about your recent climb of Cerro Riso Patron's South Summit, way down in what Rolo Garibaldi's site padded climb called El Culo del Mundo, the butt of the world. <laughs> yeah, I think that's uh, quite an appropriate name. It's uh, <laughs> it's really far from anything else, that place. Yeah, it's down there in Chile's Bernardo O'Higgins National Park. And it looks absolutely incredible. I mean, endless fjords, islands, glacier-covered mountains, lakes, wetlands. But it certainly doesn't look like an easy place to get to. And you guys went in super deep. Uh, you paddled 100 kilometers from Puerto Eden to access the wall. So one thing, the first thing that comes to mind is, for me, how do you guys choose your objective? Well, actually, uh, we have been to El Chalten several times. And uh, for me, it was always a little bit strange to hear all those stories of Patagonia, of uh, being out in the wild and everything. But then there is a town with uh, bars and everything. 
And so when Matteo came up with the idea to go there, to do something really in the wild, outside, it, uh, yeah, it sounded like going to the real Patagonia. And yeah, for me, I was totally psyched to go there. The place, uh, it's uh, so close to, the, to Chalten. I mean, uh, in distance, it's like uh, 70 kilometers. But uh, in the reality, you're totally in another world. I mean, uh, you are so far from anything that uh, it's a totally different game. Yeah. Yeah. Now, I know that there's a little bit of history with, um, with the Ragni di Lecco down there in Enriso Patron. And uh, Matteo, you were just recently elected to president of the Rogni, so congratulations on that. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> um, did that factor into your decision making at all? And can you go into a little bit of that history? Uh, yeah, I mean, um, basically, all the mountains in Patagonia have uh, a part of their history is somehow linked to Ragni di Lecco because. Uh, uh, they were uh, always uh, either the first or among the first to to be there and try to climb those mountains. And um, especially, I read uh, many times, uh, and uh, I'm I really got a lot of inspiration by one uh, member of the group, which is uh, Casimiro Ferrari. Uh, Casimiro Ferrari, it's uh, famous worldwide because of his uh, ascent of Cerro Torre in 1974, which is uh, also the first uh, confirmed ascent of the mountain. But besides that, uh, it has uh, carried out uh, a lot of other first ascent, like uh, on Fitzroy's face, he opened an amazing route. Uh, they opened an incredible line on Cerro Murajon, the northeast ret. It's like maybe one the best line ever in Patagonia, like uh, uh, super cool, really wild. And uh, also, Riso Patron uh, was uh, firstly ascended by him and, uh, and another two Ragni in uh, 1988. So, I mean, uh, I knew about this mountain because, uh, of course, because uh, he's ascent. And uh, and also because of uh, the only other ascent of this mountain, which was made by a team of uh, French and Argentinian climber in 2015. Uh, so I mean, like, uh, yeah, two ascents in 30 years is really not that much. And uh, yeah, this place, uh, there were all the ingredients for a cool adventure, and uh, of course uh, the potential for doing cool stuff uh, looked uh, really endless um what about you two what's your what's your history climbing together i know that uh, in 2014 you guys teamed up for another big kayak fair means climbing expedition uh on the shark's tooth in greenland um have you guys done a bunch of trips together and what is it particularly about these big fair means, especially by kayak uh, expeditions that attracts you? Well, I think it started, well, I met Matteo the first time in Ticino. That's a really nice climbing spot in Switzerland because I was looking for information about trad climbing, which became quite rare in Europe or at least in Switzerland. And uh, yeah, so we figured out that uh, we are a good match for going on adventure climbs. 
And then after a while, it was actually another friend of us who had the idea of going to Greenland with kayaks just because uh, he's interested in doing more than only climbing and getting closer to the real adventure, you know, not only just climbing, 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 but really fighting the nature and everything. And so he came up with this idea of going to Greenland with kayaks. And uh, fortunately, Matteo was psyched. Yeah, on that trip, we had never uh, went on a kayak before. I mean, we started the preparation like uh, uh, three months before starting. We, <laughs> yes, Sylvan came up with this idea. Ah, look, there is this cool wall out there in Greenland. Yeah, it's pretty cool. Why don't we go with kayak? And I was like, yeah, it's a cool idea. But uh, <laughs> first, we need to learn how to go on a kayak, right? And that was just a cool part uh, of, uh, of this expedition. I mean, uh, challenging something uh, which is uh, outside what uh, an alpinist usually do. It was a different kind of adventure. So learning also about this sport and, uh, and putting it, it, what we learn into practice uh, not, not on a lake, but on the Arctic Ocean. So kind of of an art environment. And, uh, well, for me, the expedition uh, to Greenland in 2014 was really something amazing. Like, it was uh, maybe the perfect trip. I mean, we, there was this, the wall was really cool. The approach, 200 kilometers by kayak and untouched nature, great environment. And so I was wondering all those years where we could have done another adventure like this, but somehow different. Mm. And um, actually, Sylvan already went on another trip in Greenland, which was uh, uh, also with kayaks and proved to be hard in 2016 that I missed. And so I didn't go with him that time. And so I was really looking forward for, for this because uh, after four years, I could uh, pedal again and test out this combination kayak and climbing again took four cool. years to feeling able to kayak again <laughs> <laughs> yeah <laughs> well hopefully after 400 kilometers of paddling in the arctic ocean you guys were both a little bit better prepared for this trip yeah. but you guys ran into some other hurdles also didn't you what can you walk me through some of the issues with getting permits uh, what was the hang-up there? Do you need to, like, settle the score with cigarettes and beer? <laughs> what did you do? Yeah, well, actually, it already started quite uh, strange when we arrived uh, in Puerto Eden. There was already this guy from the park office waiting for us. And, uh, yeah, we were thinking, yeah, we have so many permits from different uh, offices. And uh, there is a... Uh, Another guy from the park, but uh, apparently we did not have this permit. And uh, yeah, I actually can't remember how many permits in the end did we needed. I think four. What happened? Did you guys have to, did you get held up for a day or was it kind of eventually it just got settled out? Were there any real hangups? It was really funny because uh, I'm not speaking Spanish, so I was always uh, kind of asking Matteo what's going on. <laughs> and we were there uh, 
with this guy from the park office who is actually also running the the local uh, the local hotel <laughs> and uh, in the end it was clear it was only missing the park office permit which is not uh, the hardest to get and uh, and then we discussed and he said okay let's talk with the guy and maybe offer him two hundred dollar or something that we can go. <laughs> Don't say. <laughs> <laughs> but in the end, <laughs> in the end, it was not. No, but it was just an idea. Not all legal, yeah. <laughs> but, but in the end, uh, he said, uh, "Now, if you guys can prove that you already applied for the for the permission, um, you can go, and it's okay." Cool. No, but before going, we had to do one thing. We had to wash the kayaks <laughs> <laughs> because they were dirty, so we couldn't put them directly in the sea. We first had to wash them, and then we could put them in the sea. Yeah, really. Yeah, yeah, but it's not because they were dirty. It's probably because they were worried it was infected with, you know, some sort of like foreign uh, bacteria yes. or something. Yeah. Exactly. That was, that was the idea, but he did not have any disinfectant. It just gave us rainwater to wash it for the disinfectants. <laughs> yeah. Well, anyway, everything uh, settled pretty well. I mean, we could start. Uh, we just we just lost basically a day, and then we could start uh, our trip. Yeah. But then uh, you know, uh, I don't know if you have seen the pictures of uh, the whole expedition, Chris. Uh, have you seen the picture of the tsunami at base camp? Yeah, and that was going to be exactly my next question. So yeah, so like, you guys so... paddled in a hundred kilometers, and then you got into Fonrouge Bay, and apparently there'd been an enormous tsunami. Uh, yeah, yeah. Exactly. Tell me about that. Yeah, just in time. I mean, if we arrived there one week earlier, we were probably not here talking with you right now because uh, it was uh, really something massive. I mean, everything destroyed uh, within one, more than one kilometer inland. So it was this big uh, landslide uh, in another part of the fjord and uh, which went into the water and there was this huge wave and wow. everything was destroyed. We arrived there, we could still see dead fishes wow. uh, around and uh, ice chunks uh, also lying on this plane, a lot of uh, dead trees. And uh, it was really uh, the desolation and destruction. And at the beginning, we, did, we couldn't figure out what uh, happened. And then we realized the only possibility was. Uh, this tsunami yeah, it was very funny because first Matteo said oh wow this must have been uh, maybe last year and then I, said, then I looked at the dead fish on the ground and said <laughs> look the fish has still clear eyes it must be only a few <laughs> days no <laughs> yeah Jeez. well sometimes we are really lucky and we cannot we don't even realize how lucky we are okay so you guys paddle 100 kilometers uh, by the grace of whatever deity you want to believe in, you survived a tsunami by the skin of your teeth. I mean, you didn't experience it, but you could have been there. Um, and then you still had some issues just getting to advanced base camp. Um, it sounds like you guys had to swim across a lake, which I'm assuming was pretty darn cold, and set up an 80-meter Tyrolean. 
and I can say from personal experience, like an 80 meter Tyrolean is pretty long. Uh, it's hard <laughs> to get the rope tensioned well enough. So could you describe like, you know, did that just go super easily or was this actually a big crux of the trip? No, in the end, it went quite smooth. I mean, the main issue was to play rock, paper, scissor, who is the one who swims. <laughs> Uh-huh. <laughs> but uh, but uh, there, the, the point is that the river has uh, two steep hills on both sides. Uh, so okay. we, we could, that's why it was 80 meters, because the river is only maybe 30. And then we just okay. went uh, further on both sides inland to, to put the, the rope on the trees up the hills. And so the Tyrolean was quite high and we were using a, a static rope. Yep, yep. So there was not... In the end, it took us maybe only one hour to set the Tyrolean. I was quite surprised how fast it went. But uh, in fact, uh, the the approach was really a big question mark because uh, uh, we knew the French team that uh, climbed Rizu Patrone in 2015. The year before, they had tried on uh, the same uh, the same side, the same valley where we went. And they took another approach. They went up um, a hill and crossed a very bad glacier. And they had an, an accident where uh, one of them, uh, Jerome Sullivan, fell in a crevice and uh, dislocated his shoulder. And he told us about this uh, very complex approach among uh, the jungle and then up this glacier and lots of hours. So we were a bit worried about that, and and in the end we were surprised that with this uh, this trick of the Tyrolean, uh, everything turned out to be pretty easy. I mean, in in like once the Tyrolean was set in six hours, we could arrive to our ABC, and our ABC was then one hour, an hour and a half uh, from the wall. So um, I guess. Uh, I guess this Tyrolean was really a good decision. I mean, if compared to uh, to the French approach, uh, which they told us it was like twelve hours or more. So, yeah, it was um, a bit uh, of a different approach, original approach, but uh, efficient for sure. Yeah, well, as efficient as this terrain can be. <laughs> <laughs> it was really it was really we were always walking with rubber boots that's really yeah. the basic gear you need and it's all full of swamps and bushes and uh, right <laughs> and uh, well at the moment i was putting on my my mountain boots uh, i was al- almost crying i was so happy <laughs> <laughs> it's the first abc where you get there with rubber boots so now that you're in abc and you're kind of looking at the wall. It sounds like you start to get a bit of bad weather. Um, how did you pick your objective on the southwest base? And was it your original goal to climb that that wall or that via that route? Um, how did you deal with the weather and picking your objective? Well, the cool part was that since it was uh, an unclimbed summit, also the wall was unclimbed. So we could choose whatever we wanted for going up. We didn't really have to care about other routes or we we really had uh, all the possibilities. And uh, we kept open all these possibilities till the very last moment. So we were um, 
we were thinking uh, about different lines, different possible lines where we could uh, climb this mountain according also to the conditions. Because the conditions changed really fast. Like one day it, was, it looked everything dry and clean. And the next day a storm came and it looked uh, like a Scottish condition. So all covered with rime. Wow. And yeah, and so we were really open a bit to everything. And the line uh, that we chose uh, was in the end uh, what we thought uh, what be- was best according to the conditions of the moment. Yeah, maybe you said, Chris, we got some bad weather. Maybe we need to say that the, the weather was mostly bad, as usual there. It's, uh, <laughs> there it's much more rain than in El Chalten. It's basically raining every day and everything is soaked. And uh, also because of that, we had a lot of time to discuss. And sometimes it was really hard because we had nothing to do. So the whole day we were discussing which line, which approach, where to go. And uh, yeah, in the end, uh, we had a lot of time for planning, but the weather didn't let us really plan because every day the world looked different, like Matteo said. Right. And uh, yeah, and also most of the time we couldn't see the mountain. So you guys had plenty of time to get on each other's nerves and to argue about like what you're eating for dinner and who's going to do the dishes, right? Well, we never do the dishes. <laughs> yeah, good about expeditions. But on a on a serious note, though, I know that like uh, dynamics between partners on an expedition can be tough, especially when you're weathered in and you can't do much. Um, would you guys find that to be a, a struggle between the two of you at all, or do you just get along great? Well, I think uh, we are very used to go together on expedition and uh, I wouldn't say we had big issues. It's just uh, uh, a special situation when, you, when you're when you only in two and you're always in the tent waiting for good weather. We, we started to discuss about which line and where to go on the approach. And yeah, it was always, you know, the same discussion over and over again and uh, in the end, the only way to know where to go is uh, just to go there. But yeah, we had to wait and <laughs> we're turning in circles. And uh, I think that was kind of a, kind of a weird situation because you're there, you're fo- fully motivated, you want to give all. But then, uh, yeah, you just wait. And yeah, that was kind of hard. The waiting game, the typical waiting game of Patagonia. <laughs> yes. <laughs> Uh, no, I think, uh, yeah, it was part of the game. We were also kind of prepared for that because we knew the the weather could have been uh, bad. And um, in the end, uh, the, the waiting part was not that long. It was like more or less a week we, we had to wait. So, uh, yeah, it's long, but it's not terrible. And... Um, and in this time, uh, yeah, we had a lot of talking. We did, it, there is not really much to do once there. But then, uh, yeah, when Patagonia is like this, when you climb and you pick up uh, the, the good day for climbing and you see those fantastic mountains, then you forget uh, of uh, all the time you spent waiting. In a second, you just uh, think that uh, all the time you were there it was all worth it for uh, for being there in that moment and climbing uh, those amazing mountains in uh, in good weather. 
Okay, so you guys, the weather finally did clear up, and you, I mean, I read your guys' report, and basically, it sounds like you just flew up the wall. It took you 12 hours to climb 900 meters of new terrain with difficulties up to M7+. plus. I mean, it couldn't have just been that easy, was it? How did it go? Uh, can you go into some detail about the climb itself? Well, in the be- beginning, uh, we couldn't see the wall from from the ABC. So, I mean, we could see part of it, but not all. And we were just walking up the glacier and uh, see more and more. And in the end, uh, after many discussions before, we realized now we just see the wall really the first time and everything was a little bit random. We just said, okay, let's go here. We decided to start and the, the first part of the wall turned out to be quite easy. But we were happy for that because um, yeah, it was all covered with ice and snow. So we were basically climbing unroped in, I don't know, third, fourth class terrain. Getting into a couloir and there was some fog above. So we couldn't really see what's going on. And we climbed up this couloir and then we realized that the couloir is closed higher up with big walls. And uh, yeah, that's where we found basically the, the crux bit of the route was to getting out of this couloir. There was a thin crack, which was perfect for a, for a tooling. That was pretty cool. And uh, so we got higher and higher. And, and after the harder part in the rock, uh, we finally got to the snow. Who who ended up leading that crux? Silvan. He is the the dry tooling and the mixed climbing master. Yeah. <laughs> we went also before this trip. Uh, he also brought me to Kandersteg for uh, some training. His home area. And uh, yeah, I mean, I can see he, for for sure he can use the ice axes much much better than me. So <laughs> the choice cool. was not the difficult difficult. Usually we uh, used to play this kind of uh, decision uh, with rock paper and scissors, but uh-huh. in this case uh, it was a um, more uh, an obvious uh, an obvious choice. Yeah, yeah. In the end, uh, we we managed to climb fast because uh, uh, the route uh, was um, it had some hard pitches like uh, this one, which uh, took uh, quite a long time. I think. We we spent more than an hour to for climbing just those twenty five meters. Uh, like Sylvan started with the backpack and then left down the backpack, so this was tough. But then uh, other sections uh, were just um, difficulties were just not that uh, not that high, and uh, we could climb uh, pretty fast. Uh, the terrain was tricky in the end. Uh, Maybe one of the or the most risky situation uh, of the whole expedition was just when I was leading this uh, easy terrain, like maybe it was M4, like it was very easy. So I was uh, yeah, but slabby. It's slabby. I was feeling confident. The problem was that it was all frozen and there was the the rocky slab below my feet. So my crampons slipped, and then I was thinking I had a very good hook with the ice axe, but the ice axe, of course, popped out. And oh, then, God. yeah, I was already thinking, shit, here I'm going uh, <laughs> into the unknown. I will, I don't know what's going on. And then suddenly I just stopped, uh, like, uh, after three meters. I looked up, and I saw 
my other ice axe, which I was not using, I had left it down because, I, I mean, it was uh, just on the side of the boot. It, it just got stuck on the rock and the leash held the, the fall. <laughs> <laughs> With the spinner leash, which is supposed yeah. to hold only 50 kilos. <laughs> 200 kilos. Ah, 200, okay. Yeah. And my ice axe was uh, all... Um, all torn it was all uh pointing uh <laughs> towards left <laughs> <laughs> but, so how'd the rest of the climb go after that i could use that isaacs only with the right hand because it was looking left so if i use it with the right hand i was like uh pinching a bit the uh no, the ice. <laughs> no, but then the the rest of the climb uh, went uh, more smoothly. <laughs> we didn't uh, we didn't have uh, any other um, situations like this. And the rest of the climbing was really amazing. I mean, I I, I haven't climbed uh, that much ice in Patagonia, but this was really good. It was like a typical mix of ice and rhyme you got in Patagonia. Uh, but uh, good. I mean, not super scary. It was there was ice below, so we could protect uh, and uh, uh, we could really go up uh, pretty fast. The upper part was really enjoyable, an enjoyable climb for sure. So okay, so you topped out in about twelve hours, and then you guys had initially wanted to traverse over to the central summit. Isn't that correct? Yeah, the reality was that uh, in the end it was looking too hard for the time uh, we still had. I mean, the good weather we we still had because um, the following day was supposed to be still okay, the weather, but then uh, our forecast said it was going to get worse uh, in the evening. So we didn't have that much time, uh, I mean, for the climb and that red would have required... Uh, yeah, for sure, um, for sure, a lot of time. So in the end, we were just also happy with the with the south summit of Rizzo Patron, and uh, we had a very nice bivy, just one pitch below the summit. The next day, we woke up uh, and then uh, went down. That's awesome. Sounds like an absolutely amazing climb. Um, certainly not the biggest thing either of you guys have climbed. Certainly not the hardest. What really interests me about this story is that you guys, you, had a, you have a 22-day expedition, which includes 200 kilometers of kayaking. And in the end, you climb 900 meters in 12 hours. That's all for 12 hours of climbing. Why? <laughs> like you guys are climbers. You're not professional kayakers. Why? What really draws you guys to this kind of expedition? Yeah, you have to look to the whole picture. You have to look to the big adventure, no? So, uh, yeah, it's true that we are uh, climbers, we're alpinists, but uh, at the same time, I think uh, a cool part is to look for uh, something uh, different, something uh, unknown that uh, you never know how it's going to, to finish. And I think this was a, a prime example of, uh, of pure adventure because. Uh, uh we we really had little information on that on about the wall so the climbing was good but was just a small part of uh, this big picture 
and then uh, i mean if the weather was uh, was good uh, we we were thinking of climbing some more of course because it's a paradise i think there for climbing the possibilities are are huge there is a huge potential when we arrived to the summit we just looked uh, we could see Cerro Buracchio, the central summit of uh, Riso Patron. I mean, there's so much to do there. So it's just, uh, it's just an amazing place. We felt a bit like uh, also exploring uh, this terrain uh, uh, in, in the true sense of the word. I mean, in the sense that uh, we, we couldn't really know what to expect. And we were uh, also looking for uh, new lines and new possibilities. And I think. Uh, uh, if it was not for the fact that it's really, really far, I think uh, it would be really a paradise for mixed climbing. Maybe for, for me, uh, I did my first expedition in 2012 in Greenland, and there uh, we used the helicopter to get to the base camp. Because uh, at that time, uh, yeah, we thought that it's the easiest way, it's super expensive, but... Yeah, that's the easiest way without hassles, and we did that, and we we climbed around ten thousand meter first ascents there, and uh, there, and also while climbing in the Alps, I realized always when you finish a climb or you're on the summit, you you look to the next summit and you say, ah, this one is also cool. I also want to climb this, and that's the addiction thing of climbing. No, you always want to consume more and more and more, and. Uh, for myself, I, I realized it's much cooler and much more satisfying if you set one hard goal. Mm. And since I'm not very into 8,000ers peak or whatever, <laughs> I was thinking, okay, let's, let's make this kind of uh, sit-start idea where you, where you start by fair means from the last settlement and just pack the climb into an entire adventure and the entire story. Because I think in the end, we are much happier with having climbed Riso Patron Sur in one day. And that's, that's the topping of a whole trip instead of going there and climbing, climbing, climbing. Because this, yeah, if you just want to climb, I think you can also stay at home. <laughs> yeah, I think, that's, I think you guys touched on a lot of interesting points there. One that I'd like to dig into a little bit more is this idea of fair means. Um, obviously everything in climbing is somewhat arbitrary, you know, it's just rules that we make up. Um, a lot of the times you can just walk to the back of the thing. Do you guys think there are other ways that you could push fair means even further? Um, obviously you're not going to kayak from Europe down there, <laughs> but you know what I mean? Like you guys flew all the way across the world. Um, you had something to tell you what the weather was going to be. I mean, even just some of the earlier expeditions in Patagonia, they didn't have any way to get the forecast other than a barometer. So how do you guys feel about that? Does it get to a point where it doesn't make any sense to, to keep like figuring out some other way to make it even more fair means? Or do you guys hope in the future to do things even a little differently? Yeah, I think, uh, you know, by fair means, of course, you can start at your home and traversing the Atlantic from Europe to, to get there. And <laughs> But, yeah, you always, I mean, in the end, you have to do what you think is fun. 
And right. there are no rules, as we said before. Everyone decides himself. Me, just generally, I like the Pyfermin's idea of uh, starting from the last settlement. If, the, if there is a clear last mm. settlement where people really live all year long and you start from there, that's, that's for me a little bit the rule. And uh, for the future, what I really would like to do is, now we figured out that with kayaks, you're basically able to, to bring food and gear for climbing for one month. That's basically the mm. limit. Okay. And uh, now what I'm really psyched to to think, but I really need to think about it first a little bit longer, <laughs> is to do a kind of a very long crossing in Greenland. There is basically a place where you have uh, a thousand kilometers between two settlements, nothing in between. And exactly in the middle is a, is a, are some big mountains. Wow. And for me, the next step would be to try to do something like that. And... This also includes that we might would have to go hunting and fishing to get extra food because uh, otherwise we, we wouldn't make it with the loads in the kayaks. And that's it's pretty cool because you I think it's it's a cool challenge because uh, for this we need to re be really good in kayaking and we need to understand the the local nature, you know, for hunting and fishing you need to understand and uh, yeah, I think that's that could be a really cool challenge and a really cool story. The thing is that we always want to do something more to make a real challenge where we don't know if we succeed or not. So if now we saw that we are able to do this, the next step has to be something different and with some other unknown elements apart for uh, for the kayaking. So what Sylvan is saying about this uh, this next next trip, uh, it's uh, it's basically pushing the limit a little bit more also in this style. Yeah, I think the important thing is also you know uh, maybe when I was younger I wanted primarily to pushing you know my finger strength to get the stronger climber stronger and always more. But now I'm realizing, yeah, okay, I'm probably not going to win any World Cup in climbing <laughs> <laughs> because I'm too old and too fat. But uh, but what I can do is I can learn, you know, I can yeah. learn new things. And uh, yeah, I think that's this kind of personal development, which is really cool in expeditions. You can, yeah, as Matteo said, you can add more and more unknown elements and figure out to deal with them. Thanks to Matteo and Silvan for coming on the show and to Chris for doing the interview. I also want to thank our presenting sponsor, Hilleberg the Tentmaker, for making this show possible. Check them out at hilleberg.com. And thanks to all of you for listening to The Cutting Edge. You can find all of our episodes and tons of photographs at our website. Google Cutting Edge Podcast and you'll find it. Until next time, this is Dougal McDonald wishing you happy climbs. <laughs>